God of creation, there at the start, before the beginning of time. With no point of reference, you spoke to the dark and fleshed out the wonder of life. My teaching today is called The Collision of Worldviews. Last week we talked a bit about the needed contrast between sin and righteousness to fully comprehend the significance of the resurrection. That mankind is in utter spiritual and moral desperation and he requires a savior and he requires the resurrection. Today I want to talk about worldviews. When we use the term worldview, what do we mean? Well, I looked it up. I was on the internet and I found a really good article called What's a Christian Worldview by Focus on the Family? Which, by the way, is an organization that through the years has just not compromised at all. And I really appreciate that. But uh, in this article, it says, A worldview is a framework from which a person views reality and makes sense of life and the world. It's an ideology or a philosophy, theology, movement, or religion that provides an overarching approach to understanding the world and man's relationship to it. For example, a two-year-old believes that he is the center of his world. A secular humanist believes that the material world is all that exists. And a Buddhist believes that he can be liberated from suffering by self-purification. Someone with a biblical worldview, on the other hand, believes his primary reason for existence is to love and to serve God. Whether consciously or subconsciously, every person has some type of worldview. A personal worldview is a combination of all that the person believes to be true and what he believes becomes the driving force behind every emotion, decision, and action. Therefore, it affects his response to every area of life, from philosophy to science, theology and anthropology to economics, law, politics, art, and social order. Everything. So that's that's a pretty good definition of worldview. There was a nationwide survey that was done by a man named George Barna, and he asked the following questions. Does absolute moral truth exist Is absolute truth defined in the Bible? Did Jesus Christ live a sinless life? Is God the all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the universe? And does he still rule it today? Is salvation a gift from God that cannot be earned? Is Satan real? Does a Christian have a responsibility to share his or her faith in Christ with other people? And finally, Is the Bible accurate in all of its teachings? So this was given to Christians. How many Christians or what percentage of Christians do you believe said yes to all of these? The answer is 9%. 9%. Only 9% of born-again believers believe these statements to be true. That's pretty lousy. It would seem that for many Christians, their worldview has become diluted and diminished. So in our run-up today to Resurrection Sunday, I want to talk about what I'm calling here the collision of worldviews I see in our culture. Go ahead and take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 1, Romans 1. 
Now, we're going to be listening to some very sobering truths here. I think we're all up to the challenge. As I said before, sometimes God's word is very sobering, but to the true disciple of Christ, it's thrilling in its honesty. And I was thinking about that verse in Corinthians where it says, seeing that we have such a hope, we use great plainness of speech. Does everybody know what that means? Plainness of speech means that I just say it like it is. So Romans chapter 1, and we'll look in verse 9. It says, God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness. How constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? And that's that's the heart of a minister for his people, is that he wants to make them strong. But it's not just a one-way street, is it? It goes both ways, that, that the minister is strengthened by his people and blessed by his people. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I had among other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. That's why I am eager to preach the gospel also to you which are at Rome. Hold your finger here and go to First Corinthians Chapter 15. So what he keeps talking about here is preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel. He says that I am obligated to the Greek and the non-Greek, right? That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel. So we went over this last week. We're going to go over it again today. What is the gospel? Well, scripture gives us an answer. Look in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. It says, now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel. I preach to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you firmly, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. So that's the gospel. Look in verse 11. So Paul says, whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believe, Christians. Look in verse 13. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be liars, false witnesses. Look at verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. And I was thinking about this. Why Why would he be pitied among all men if, if his hope in Christ was just in this life only? Do you think? Because Paul was being persecuted. (laughs) He was being persecuted for his faith. And if there was no resurrection, then his faith is in vain. So he was being persecuted for nothing. 
Um, look at verse 20. It says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. How about that? So that's the gospel. That's what the gospel is all about. So when we talk about a Christian worldview, the Christian worldview should be defined by what? The gospel. All mankind is dead in trespasses in sins, without God and without hope in this world, and is in desperate need of salvation. Adam represents death, sin, the flesh, God's anger and disapproval, and finally, God's judgment. Christ, on the other hand, represents life, righteousness, holiness, the spirit, God's favor, and finally, God's glorification. Isn't that wonderful? That's the contrast. Christ and his resurrection occupies the very center of the gospel. And as such, it should occupy the very center of Christian worldview. Go back to Romans chapter 1 and look in verse 16. This is why Paul says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed from uh, a righteousness that is from first to last. And I don't uh, I like that translation. It should be from faith to faith. That's the translation. Just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It's our faith in Christ, our faith in Christ's accomplished work. He paid the price that we were unable by ourselves to pay. Remember in Romans where it says, for when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then it says, God commends his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So it was it was a price that was too high for us to pay. Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Look at verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and the wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. How about that? So God made the truth plain. Now, it's interesting here that you'll notice that there's really no segue between verse 17 and verse 18. In verse 17, we're talking about what? The righteousness of God, right? The righteousness of God is revealed from heaven. Or, or, I'm sorry, the righteousness of God, he's not ashamed of the gospel, it's for it's the righteousness of God by faith to faith. Okay, the just shall live by faith. In verse 18, however, it starts talking about the wrath. So, the wrath of God. So you see here this distinct difference between these two things. You have God's righteousness and God's wrath. Okay? And now in these, in the, these following verses, we're gonna read about God's wrath, God's anger. Who is God's anger against? It's manifested against men who suppress the truth, suppress the truth. So let's talk a little bit 
about truth. This usage of the word truth here isn't in regards to some esoteric or philosophical notion of truth. It simply means self-evident truth, truth that we all see and acknowledge. You know, I was thinking about this today. I think we all take reality for granted. We naively believe that each one of us shares the same sense of reality. And that's why sometimes when you're talking to somebody and they just don't get it and you're like, I just explained it to you. How could you not get it? Well, they're, <laughs> they're working from a different framework. Their sense of reality is different than yours or mine. We don't all share this sense of reality. When I say something is self-evident, what I mean by this is that there are things that we know by virtue of the fact that we all share the same planet, don't we? We're all earth dwellers. And by being earth dwellers, we all interact with the same natural laws. Okay? I think we would all agree that if you jump off a building, unless you have wings or a power pack like the Avengers, you're going down. <laughs> we all understand from our relationship with the animal kingdom, for example, a few things such as there are only two genders, male and female. We understand that male and female are natural sexual counterparts with one another and that the two of them are required for what? Procreation. We understand that there are differences between the natural and the unnatural. Okay? Most importantly, we should all understand that there is a creator God of the universe. This should be self-evident to everyone who is a earth dweller. Now, whether or not you claim to be an atheist or an agnostic is irrelevant. It really is. You are still created in the image of God, and as a result, you are an image bearer. Every human being with cognizance at one point in his or her life understands this or understood this. Each knows not only of God's existence, but also of his creative order, his creative order, that there is in the universe both a physical and a moral order to this universe. And a person denies this at his or hers own peril. Look at verse 20. It says, for the, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. And this is talking about mankind as a whole. We're talking a universal sense of mankind here. All mankind have clearly seen and they understand by that which is made, which is another way of saying they understand God by his creation. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? That we should all behold the creation and it should witness God to us. It should be a witness an irrefutable witness, I would add, of God. And just this is the very basis of God's judgment. If every human were not aware of God, he could not be, that person could not be held guilty for his sin. Isn't that interesting? That God's judgment of all mankind is dependent upon mankind's acknowledgement 
that he exists. His eternal power and Godhead. I thought that was amazing, thinking about that. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, and I want to emphasize they knew him, (laughs) they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks. So the point was, is that mankind did not hold God in high esteem, right? And mankind allowed him to be degraded in his mind and heart. And that's important. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. In other words, mankind began to worship the created and not the creator. He began to worship nature. You see, either the universe is the result of creation by free personal agency, or in some way or other, it created itself. You don't have to turn there, but Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. So what was So that what is seen is not made out of what is visible, meaning that God did not create the universe out of something that he already created or or that was already there. In other words, nature is a result of creation, and it should not be seen separately from it. The Judeo-Christian worldview says, in the beginning, God. In contrast, in the words of this columnist, I mostly enjoy reading, uh, Paglia Camille. The godless worldview is, in the beginning, nature. Nature is seen as standing on its own, apart from God. God is deemed as being unnecessary. Peter Jones, in this book I told you about, that I'm reading, The Other Worldview, says, we cannot step out of the universe to find an objective point of view. We must make a faith decision between two alternatives. That there is only, and there are only two. If God and nature make up reality, then all is two, and everything is either creator or creature, created. On the other hand, if the universe, or what we're calling here nature, is all there is, then all is one. It just is. There is no overarching plan or intent or order. Does everybody understand that? That if nature stands on its own, that if nature created itself, there is no plan or order. The believer's worldview informs him that all humanity assumes, quote, a separate and equal station with one another, which, as the Declaration of Independence tells us, the laws of nature and nature's God entitles them. That beautiful language. There are both universal laws that govern man and universal rights to which he is entitled. That's the Christian worldview. The person who does not believe in God's power and divinity and who does not believe that God created also does not believe that there is an immutable natural order to the universe, both physically and morally, and as such seeks in his foolish mind darkened by conceit to circumvent and overthrow God's natural order. He no longer recognizes universal laws that govern and universal rights to which he is entitled. And many of those people are our leaders in government in this country today. Look in verse 24. Therefore, 
God gave them over. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. So this term or this phrase, God gave them over, within this phrase is this sense of relinquishment, even abandonment, that God abandoned them or relinquished them to their desires. And this is God's recognition of what? Freedom of will. Freedom of will. If you want to make your vice, your sexual impurity, your God, God's not going to stop you. God will relinquish you. Now, this this phrase, God gave them over, is used three times in this section. It's used here in verse 24. It's also used in verse 26 and also in 28. Here, it's that the, the person is relinquished to the lust of their own hearts. In verse 26, they are relinquished to shameful passions. And in verse 28, they are relinquished to a worthless mind, a worthless mind. And one thing, you know, a point to keep in mind as we read through these relinquishings, we should bear in mind that they have a progressive decline to them. Okay, and this is important to keep in mind that that mankind as we go through, is progressively declining. In other words, societies that turn their backs on God progressively reap the consequences of their choice. Verse 24 says that God gave them over to sexual desires. Now, it's interesting that the first thing here that happens as a result of this departure from God is that it manifests itself sexually. Why sexually? Well, Think about it this way. If we're talking about God's natural moral order for any species, sex is about as natural and as essential as you can get, right? It lies at the very foundation of you. (laughs) The continuation of a species is dependent upon it. For our first parents, Adam and Eve, sex defined the marriage relationship and continues to, right? That two shall become one flesh. Sex is fundamental to the human experience. And Satan knows this and knows that to corrupt mankind, he must corrupt him morally. And he does so by corrupting his sex. Okay? So it's not this Christian preoccupation on sex, it's stating the case. It says they, it goes on to say they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. And there it is right there. Remember what I was saying earlier in the beginning, God as opposed to in the beginning, nature, nature. They began to worship the created, and not the creator. Entire societies have opted to follow myths over reality. I was thinking about this quote. I love this quote. It says, In the time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. Isn't that great? That was George Orwell. In the time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. Well, folks, we are living in a time of universal deceit. It is all around us. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over. There it is again, 
to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. God relinquished them to their shameful lusts. And he uses these terms, natural and unnatural, in order to describe this turning over. Natural means that which is in accordance with what? God's natural order. Unnatural means just the opposite, that which is contrary to God's natural order. And in this case, in this verse, we are talking about lesbianism, women sexually desiring other women. In God's word, it's called unnatural. Is that clear to everybody? So that kind of makes you start to wonder why some Christian churches are marrying and ordaining such individuals. Verse 27, in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Wow, that's pretty strong language, isn't it? But it seems very clear to me. Is there any doubt here what we're talking about? And this penalty that this verse speaks of is God's judgment. God's judgment. So as we consider worldviews, it's interesting to note that one of our previous presidents made the following statement. Now listen to this. This is quite a statement. He said in regards to the book of Romans, quote, I am not willing to have the state deny American citizens a civil union. And that was, at the time it was civil unions. Now it's gay marriage, right? But he said, uh, I'm not willing to have the state deny American citizens a civil union that confers equivalent rights on such basic matters as hospital visitation or health insurance coverage simply because the the people they love are of the same sex. Nor am I willing to accept a reading of the Bible that considers an obscure line in Romans to be more defining of Christianity than the Sermon on the Mount. That's quite a statement there. Is anything that we're reading in Romans, he was referring, by the way, to what we're reading in Romans right now. Is what we're reading in Romans at all obscure? I don't think it is. I think it's very clear. And as far as its relationship to the Sermon on the Mount, I guess what he was saying was, you know, blessed are those who are pure of heart, blessed are those, you know, the the uh, Beatitudes. There's no conflict here. It's a false contrast. But it's it's a, it's a point of view that a lot of Christians take. So when we're talking about this progressive decline, does it mean that everyone who goes down this path becomes a homosexual? No, that's not what it's saying. In fact, the whole content of this chapter isn't talking about homosexuality itself. It's talking about what? Idolatry. It's talking about idolatry. Homosexual, homosexuality is given here to mark the extent of the decline to which societies have fallen away from the creative God and his created order. Does that make sense? When it comes to human sexuality, homosexuality is a complete overturning of God's natural order. Leviticus 18 tells us that God considers homosexuality an abomination. That's what it says. That's what it says. Now, recently, Pope Francis came out and he rightly said that the Roman Catholic Church cannot bless same-sex unions because God, quote, cannot bless sin, unquote. 
Now, old Pope Francis isn't one of my favorites, but I do appreciate his honesty. In response to this on the show, The View, um, I don't, many of you will probably know what The View is. CNN's Don Lemon said, uh, he's an admitted homosexual himself. He said this, quote, I respect people's rights to believe whatever they want to believe in their God. But if you believe in something that hurts another person or that does not give someone the same rights or freedoms, not necessarily under the Constitution, because this is under God, I think that's wrong. God is not about hindering people or even judging people. (laughs) Well, sorry to disagree with you, Don, but God does hinder and he certainly does judge. And that's the truth of it. Now, I was thinking about this. So this is God's stand on homosexuality. What is our responsibility being servants of God? Well, it depends. It depends. As with anyone with sin in their life, if a person exhibits a desire for change and repentance, we should have nothing but time, love, and compassion for that person, right? Remember uh, John the Baptist when he was baptizing people and he was blessing all these people and then what happened? He had a troop of Pharisees come in and he looked at them and he called them vipers. And he says, you know, bring fruits, meat for repentance, right? He said, if you're going to be here and you want to be blessed, you need to be ready to repent. That's what he was saying, like all these other people. So the point here is this, that we need to look to see if a person is wanting to repent. But if that person is holding fast to their sin with a disobedient heart, our response should always be the same, always, to give them a very clear warning. As a church, we aren't supposed to be joining support groups for LGBTQ, such as the Association of Welcoming and Affirming Baptists or Friends for Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, and Queer Concerns. I mean, that is just not what the church should be doing. The point is, the LGBTQ community has become very bold in this country due in large part to the feeble and ambiguous stance of the church. We're not here to be mean-spirited or spiteful towards such folks, to ridicule them or condemn them. That's not our job. I mean, it. the fact is, we're all sinners. That would make us hypocrites, wouldn't it? Or to, you know, take take homosexuality and and make it into this just untouchable sin, that there is redemption and forgiveness in Christ for that as well. But First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14 says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient towards all. Our job is to bear witness to the truth, as unpopular as that may be sometimes. Verse 28. It says, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over. So this is the final use of that phrase. He gave them over. He relinquished them to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. This is the end result of this moral decline. A depraved mind is a morally depraved mind, perverse. It's devoid of decency. If you ever got a chance to go to a gay rights parade, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It's debauchery. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11, it says, For this reason God sends them into a powerful delusion so that they will believe a lie. 
or the lie, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have believed or delighted in unrighteousness. And it, it, it's interesting that it says they will believe the lie. Well, what's the lie? Well, they worshiped and served the creation more than the creator. That's it. That's the lie. Now, some people would suppose that, uh, you know, God relinquishing them would be liberating, right? No more rules. No more rules. Isn't that awesome? My kids love that whole notion. No more rules. But it's not liberating. Fyodor Dostoevsky. Did you like how I said that? That sound, made me sound almost Russian. Fyodor Dostoevsky, he was an author, a very good author, Christian author in uh, Russia back in the early 1900s. He said this, a man who lies to himself and believes his own lies becomes unable to recognize truth either in himself or in anyone else. And he ends up losing respect for himself and for others. When he has no respect for anyone, he can no longer love. And in him, he yields to his impulses, indulges in the lowest forms of pleasure, and behaves in the end like an animal in satisfying his vices. And it all comes from lying, lying to others and lying to yourself. We live in a period of time now where there's an awful lot of lying going on. And it's it's incumbent upon the Christian to be able to distinguish the truth from the lie. Look in verse 29. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Now listen to verse 31. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's breathtaking, isn't it? So let's be clear on something. Who's the they in these verses talking about? Well, it's not describing homosexuals or transsexuals per se, and that's a mistake many Christians make in this chapter. It's talking about the idolatrous culture in which homosexuality and transsexuality are allowed to proliferate. Does that make sense to everybody? And this is where a lot of Christians get tricked. They read this and they say, well, I know homosexuals who aren't all that, and so do I. I know homosexuals that are very pleasant, loving people. But all I need to do is look at our culture and see what it's become, even in my lifetime, to know the truth of this passage. So don't get tricked out of this. That's not what that means. Verse 32. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, and this death sentence, by the way, comes from Leviticus 18, they not only continue to do these things, these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And this is our culture today, that there are people who are practicing in this, this homosexual lifestyle. There's a lot more people who condone it. Not only condone it in a live, let live, you know, atmosphere, but they're actually teaching it to their children that, you know, an alternative lifestyle is just fine. And this passage really paints a bleak picture, doesn't it? It does. You know, I, we were talking, my wife and I were talking about the, the whole notion of sexual reassignment or gender reassignment surgery, that they're actually inflicting this, this surgery. What's the youngest that we heard the other day? Like a seven-year-old? Yeah, in the uh, United Kingdom, that there was a three-year-old who was getting sexual reassignment or gender reassignment surgery. I mean, that 
That's perverse. That is perverse. Uh, it, it is just mind-blowing to me. Now, there are those who would read such a passage in Romans and they would disapprove of accepting it as a policy for the church. But I think everybody here should, you know, be clear on something. This is part of the gospel. And we know that gospel means good news. This is part of the good news. How many Christian leaders have I seen on TV that have, when asked this question, they hem and haw, haw and caveat. I, I uh, heard Lauren Daigle. I've played her songs on for fellowship. She's a great Christian artist. She says, quote, I can't honestly answer on that on homosexuality. In a sense, I have too many people that I love that they are homosexual. I don't know. I actually had a conversation with someone last night about it. I can't say one way or the other. I'm not God. Well, that's a cop out. That's an absolute cop out. I know people who are homosexual, too. I love them. But I'm very clear that homosexuality is no good. That is in violation of God's order. They're, my love for them has nothing to do with it. There's a, uh, a fellow named Rob Bell. He's a pastor, and he was invited onto the Oprah show. And when she asked him about accepting LGBTQ, he said, quote, I think culture is already there, and the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense, when you have in front of you flesh and blood people who are your brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and co-workers and neighbors, and they love each other and just want to go through life. Oh, my gosh. I have brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, whatever, co-workers, neighbors, and you know what? They all sin. It has nothing to do with my love for them. It has to do with the fact that they stand before God and God set the order. And the order was there is a proper sexual relationship and an improper one. You see, too often the church covers over its lack of conviction by claiming, well, it's not loving. Oh, that we could finally banish this thinking from our souls. I would respond by saying, this is the word of a loving God, and he's the one who gets to define love. It's important to understand that when love sees danger, love sounds an alarm, right? It's the loving minister that is willing to state the case unambiguously. And I think people who genuinely love, who uh, hunger and thirst after righteousness, if they go to a church and they hear the minister teaching this teaching, they ought to want to go back. But, you know, that's just me. God knows and we all stand, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. God knows what's in your heart. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to go out there virtue signaling and thrashing on homosexuals. That would be exactly wrong. That would be exactly wrong. The Christian worldview demands that we state the case of sin clearly and unambiguously because it's upon this backdrop of man's decline that we preach Christ crucified. Isn't that awesome? Go to chapter 3, Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. Romans 3, verse 21. But now, but now, a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference. And here it is, folks. Verse 23, for all have sinned 
and all have fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, if they do what? Believe. If they do, if they believe. Verse 25. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Isn't that wonderful? It's through Christ that former sins are what? They're pardoned. That all our former sins were pardoned when we get saved. Jesus Christ is to the newly converted the atoning sacrifice of all our former sins. He wipes the slate clean. It goes on to say, God did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so that, or so as to be just, that God is just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? The just and the justifier. Jesus Christ is to the believer the mediator between God and men. And it's through Jesus Christ that God forgives us our sins and cleanses, cleanses us from all righteousness. Isn't it wonderful? Huh? What did I say? All righteousness? Yeah, that's what I meant. All unrighteousness. I wouldn't be, I want to be cleansed from righteousness. Verse 27. Where is your boasting, O man? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the truth? No, but on that of faith or trust in God. Remember what we read earlier, what Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to him that believes to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not of the God of the Gentiles too? And that's a good question, isn't it? And it's upon this question that the Judeo-Christian worldview divides into the Jewish worldview and the Christian worldview. Do you understand? Because the Jewish worldview believes that their, their salvation is exclusive. The Christian worldview believes that anyone who will may come. Yes, of the Gentiles too, since there is only one God, one God not three, one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then nullify the law by faith, by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Isn't that great? This, in a nutshell, is the Christian worldview. You know, I was thinking about Moses, uh, you know, in closing here, I was thinking about Moses in Exodus 32 after he drew that line in the sand, if you all remember, in response to the golden calf that the Israelites had made to their former Egyptian gods. So it is today in the gospel of Christ that we preach. Jesus says to all mankind what Moses said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. Our message should be that clear. All right. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for that. We thank you, Father, for next week being just a, a time of rejoicing Father, bless us in our deeper understanding and knowledge of your word. Thank you, Father, that you keep us from a harshness and a mean-spiritedness. That, Father, we are humbled by our own complicity. That, Father, we too are sinners. That, Father, that we get the privilege to speak your word of salvation to everyone. 
And that, Father, it's a blessing. <clears throat> I thank you, Father, that we have the integrity and the courage to, sp- to state the case honestly. Thank you, Father, for blessing this ministry in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. And as you speak, a galaxies aboard. In the vapor of your breath, the planets form. And if the stars remain to worship so I can see your heart in everything you make Every burning star signal fire grace And if creation sings your praises so
down my heart All of my failure and pride On a hill you created Light of the world Abandoned in darkness to die And as you speak A hundred billion failures disappear Well, you lost your life so I can find it You 